So today is Love Sunday, and we are focusing on and celebrating the love that uh, flows among human beings, but also the love that surrounds to humanity in an endless flow and constantly renewing itself, constantly branching out and spreading and it's always welcoming us and always accepting us and it's always present where we, whether we're conscious or not, whether our five senses register it or not. We celebrate today that love is the ground of our being. And I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering if any of us are suffering from the holiday blues. I feel like I am, and so many people that I talk to are, and I know the holidays can be a very tricky time for many of us. We've suffered losses or we've taken hits, and maybe some of the magic of the holidays is a little bit harder for us to conjure or perhaps even impossible. So here we are in the midst of the holidays with ha which have this paradoxical magic heaviness. And that heaviness is one that we try really space for um, in our Advent celebrations by doing inward and going deep and being reflective and being contemplative. But we, here we are, we're already feeling lonely outside of the holidays. So did you know that half of Americans report that they feel chronically lonely? So we're in this time on uh, in, in humanity and in, in civilization when we have more access to, to, to communication, to human connection than ever, but half of us report that we feel chronically lonely. And it's not surprising. I don't think it's surprising. As a person who pays attention to spiritual things, I don't find that surprising because here's what I know about the ego. The ego loves for us to feel separate. It loves to tell us that we are alone. It loves to tell us that we are different or better or worse. It loves to categorize and hierarchize. It likes tidy, separate boxes, and it loves to feel righteously misunderstood. The ego wants us to be safe, and there's a kind of safety in aloneness because we're safe from having to be vulnerable and to really look at ourselves. So sometimes the ego manufactures and projects loneliness, and this is the human phenomena. This is what we can observe this happening amongst everybody. Everybody does it at some point. So it's holiday blues time, and some of us here are already depressed, and statistically half of us are chronically lonely, and we have human egos that are likely telling us that we're separated and isolated and alone. This is the situation that we find ourselves here in almost 2020, at the end of 2019. Here we are as we try to make meaning from our sacred traditions together. Okay, that's where we are. So in the last few weeks, we've been exploring this idea of home together and um, what is home and how do we get there and how do we feel home and Brittany and Aurelia and Matthew have all shared lots of beautiful ideas about that but I want to just dial it down for a sec I think at its most simple we could say that home is anywhere we feel comfortable being our true selves can we agree on that sort of general definition yeah I like how Jana framed it a few months ago in her sermon about hospitality when she said, <laughs> this is not a quote, but basically the idea is home is anywhere you don't have to fake eat. <laughs> you don't have to fake eat food that you don't like. Um, 
So um, I don't know about you, but I have a great deal of social anxiety. And I have, over the course of my life, I've had to learn to overcome a lot of shyness. I still, to this day, hate small talk. I feel awkward when I meet new people and I'm bumbling around trying to find a connection and have a conversation. Small talk to me is the uh, the total opposite of home. It's the opposite of the feeling of home. (laughs) Like, why why did you become a pastor, Fran? Like, that doesn't make any sense. You have to meet new people and make small talk all the time. I like to do hard things, guys. Um, Those of us who are introverts like me and like many of us here, and have some social anxiety, I feel like we're at a little bit of a disadvantage in regards to loneliness. We suffer from loneliness of our own making sometimes. And I say that with a great deal of self-compassion. So here's what I'm thinking. I wonder if it's a good time for us to explore those feelings of loneliness and separation and isolation. And first off, just start allowing them and accepting those feelings and letting ourselves feel them in a non-judgmental way and very kindly. Which, by the way, that's a good strategy in general for dealing with the ego, of just observing what it's doing non-judgmentally and kindly. It will calm down if you do that. So we're just feeling that feeling of isolation and separation and that feeling of no one understands me, nobody gets me. It's okay to acknowledge those feelings. But then I just wonder if maybe today we could go a little bit farther and interject some other feelings and ideas into that mix, into what we've already got going here. So I have an idea, and I wonder if you would be willing to consider them this morning. Just allow them a little bit of space in your consciousness. Please know, um, this is a gentle lob of a sermon. It's not like hardball. We're not playing hardball today. So here are my ideas. That um, I'm, Look, I'm not starting from you. I know that we sometimes get attached to those feelings. But I do think that this has a lot to do with how at home we feel in the world. I think um, it has a lot to do with how welcome and comfortable we feel in various aspects of our lives. And I have a hunch that if we can incorporate some of these ideas that I'm going to tell you about um, and do this work, we might deepen our sense of home in the world. And we also might enjoy this season more. And we may even be able to diffuse some of the messaging that our egos tell us when it tells us that we're separate and alone and misunderstood, etc. So, the first idea that I would like you to consider, if you will, is this. We are never home alone because we are with us. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm going to start with a quote from the Buddhist teacher and PhD psychologist Tara Brock. She says this. She says, in the earliest phases of our lives, what we most need from a parent is the sense that we are known and loved. In Buddhism, these expressions of awake awareness, understanding and caring, okay, understanding and caring, are often described as two, like two wings of a bird. They are interdependent and intrinsic to our well-being. On this path of healing and awakening, bringing these two wings to our own inner life and to our relationships with others is what I sometimes think of as spiritual reparenting. 
Note that concept, spiritual reparenting. The beginning of healing, she says, is recognizing suffering and asking the question, where does it hurt? Seeking to understand, offering our, in, our interested presence is the first wing of spiritual reparenting. Just as the concerned parent, seeing their child upset, angry, withdrawn, etc., would want to know what's going on, we can learn to bring interest to our inner life and gently ask ourselves, what is going on inside? Where does it hurt? End quote. So I've been thinking about this idea of self-parenting a lot lately. In particular, how can I make sure that I am a good parent to myself, that I am a kind parent, a tolerant and forgiving parent, a present and observant parent? I personally am on a journey of learning to mother myself. And I think that self-parenting skills are pretty important for us as adults to cultivate. And this is regardless of whether or not our actual parents are alive or present in our lives. We must learn about our own God-given agency and to empower ourselves to set boundaries, to set bedtimes, to do nice things for ourselves, like here's a cupcake, but also to do hard things for ourselves, like work on self-discipline. So, okay, only one. Okay, maybe two cupcakes. And I think that the way we, we begin is like so many things begin, and that is with awareness and observation. We have to learn to be there for ourselves, and we need to do that consistently enough that we finally learn that we can trust ourselves enough, we do it enough, that we build up some trust. We can learn to create stability for ourselves and gives ourself a, give ourselves a home. And that's what good parents do, or they try to. And another side of that coin is that we need to learn to observe ourselves and listen to ourselves. Good parents observe their children. And you and I, we are worthy of that same self-observation. Where does it hurt? What is going on inside? These are crucial questions for us to engage with personally. Loving parents actively love their children by practicing this awareness, and we can learn this self-love and self-compassion too. This self-parenting skill will take some work and practice to build up and to get good at. It will take attention and awareness and listening, but I think if we start looking, we can find the imago dei, the goodness and divinity and wholeness within ourselves, and we can start listening to it and trusting it and learning to be kind parents to ourselves. We learn to practice what I like to call self-allyship. And this, my friends, is how we are never alone because we are with us. Second idea for you to consider. We are never alone because community is available to us. What if that's true? What if what, say, we're creating here at peace is an antidote to loneliness? What if part of the work of the kingdom of God is in creating connections that allow love to flow? And if that connection, that communality and common care is a two-way street, 
to participate in. Like, you're not gonna wake up one day and find yourself magically part of a cohesive and connected community. You're going to have to work at it a bit. You're gonna have to go someplace and you're gonna have to have some awkward, small talky conversations. That's what it's gonna take. We have to work sometimes to create flesh and blood community around us. And this involves being vulnerable and open and revealing some of our trueness and showing others some of our pain and being willing to see the pain of other people. And that can bring up some fear for us because maybe we've been hurt or abandoned or let down or maybe our anger and resentment and jealousy loom large before us and they block the points of potential connection. Maybe that fear of vulnerability is why we feel lonely to begin with. But what if that's part of what the Christ meant when he said, the kingdom of heaven is near to you? What if he meant, y'all, you're looking up in the sky and you're looking for some other dimension, but here y'all are right here. You're right here and you have everything that you need with which to create community and with which to become the community of heaven. Wake up, folks, and look at one another. Start asking. Start asking other people, where does it hurt and how can I help? And maybe you'll get a glimpse of heaven. We got a glimpse of heaven in Juarez when we visited the migrant shelter there in October. We saw the kingdom of God in those people's eyes. For just a minute, we looked outside of ourselves. We got our noses out of our own problems and concerns, and lo and behold, there it was, the kingdom of God right before us. It came with working hands and wind-chapped faces and rumbly bellies and sweating brows. So I wonder if we allow ourselves to attend, say, communal Thursday night dinners, or say the retreat that we have coming up in January, or whatever other gathering that promotes human engagement and connection, and we give our cha- ourselves a chance to be real, to get through the awkward small talk and get to the realness. I wonder if that might help silence some of the ego's insistence that we are alone in this world. And I wonder if that work might offer us another narrative. You can consider that. Here's a third idea that I'd like you to consider. So we've got this ego that likes us to believe that we're alone, that we're islands and we're self-reliant because somehow that idea keeps us safer and less vulnerable. And then comes that rabble rouser, Jesus, who's saying as he always is, guys, the community of heaven is near to you. You're not alone. The divine flow is supporting you and you need only to become conscious of it. It's waiting for you. Everything is waiting for you. I imagine the loneliness and separation that the Holy Family felt. In our reading that Jana read about Joseph, 
I imagine that Joseph felt he had no choice but to dismiss Mary so that he could hold on to his dignity and his reputation and his societal connections. And having an already pregnant bride was, I imagine, a pretty daunting hit for him to take. And Joseph, I would guess, after a long bout of anxiety and sleeplessness, only to, di- to be visited in his dreams with divine support, divine angelic support. An angel from God is giving him the message that all is well, all is as it should be. You are in the right place, Joseph. This is the right time to, for you in the work of heaven. In what we might see as Joseph's loneliness and disappointment, after all, he had this nice marriage all lined up. He had a secure family and a future all lined up for himself. And now all the planning and all the possibility of it is just going down the drain. In all of that feeling, Joseph is divinely supported. He gets to be part of the big overarching story of divine support and presence because God is so okay with humanity. God is so good with being human so wanting human humanity to wake up that God indwells Christ as a message to us that God indwells us too and the deepest most integral and particular portions of us are echoing divinity and alive with the possibility and presence of God and Mary She also gets an angelic message, which we credit her with saying a holy yes to, but that message is not an easy one. Oh, yay, Mary, you get to be unmarried and pregnant. You get to to have this experience. It's probably going to ruin your life somehow, but she finds herself also divinely supported. First off, her intent is somehow in her corner. A miraculous surprise to her, probably, given that he could have dumped her when he found out the confusing news that she was pregnant, but I promise, Joseph, I haven't cheated on you. And then she gets, then she gets a, a sympathetic ear from her cousin, Elizabeth. And we get from all of that this gift of faith that comes down to us in the Magnificat. The Holy Family in this scenario is divinely supported every step of the way in every challenge. And that doesn't mean that they're never afraid or nervous or wondering how the heck things are gonna turn out, especially later when they find out that the emperor is killing baby boys in hopes of, kill, of doing away with their own son. At which point, guys, some random dudes roll up on camels, bringing them a warning and a getaway fortune. Tell me they're not divinely supported. So I wonder if this story is here in part to show us that the divine is into supporting and being present with humans. I wonder if it's worth our while to start looking for and appreciating the ways that we too are divinely supported. After all, here's the truth. We won't usually find things that we aren't open to seeing. It's like if you say, I never see yellow cars. And then you start paying attention and you realize that you saw four last week. Start looking for yellow cars. Start looking for signs that the divine is supporting you. What if 
we collectively could become more open to seeing ways that the divine is present and supporting us by paying attention. And I wonder if we became more aware of the messages of love and support that I personally believe, I believe that the divine is always sending us. I believe that the divine is always sending us those messages. We have only to start waking up and looking for them. If that might begin to mitigate some of our lonely feelings, and if that might nourish the thing inside of us that longs for presence. I have a hunch that if we can do some of this work, the inside work of self-parenting and self-love, self-homing, if you will, the outside work of forging meaningful connections with other humans, and the spiritual work of waking up to the divine and how she's supporting us and being present with us in every moment, if we can do this work, we can feel more safe and at home in the world. And we can have the layers of home that we need and we long for. So those are my thoughts. And I would like to leave you this morning with a beautiful poem. This poem is called Everything is Waiting for You and it's by the poet and philosopher David White. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden disability. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Amen.